We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Genesis, and this morning we are in Genesis chapter 32. Um, We are beginning to wind down in the life of Jacob. He has gone away from his home, served for 20 years his uncle Laban in the land of Padanaram, and now he is beginning to return back. Thus far, we have seen Jacob, and he has been characterized as the deceiver. Um, the first thing we learn about him is that there, he has a twin brother, and that they are wrestling around in the womb, that um, the younger will be the one that is superior to the older, that the older will actually serve the younger, and Jacob is the younger one that comes out grabbing on to the heel of his brother Esau. Um, His name, Jacob, means heel grabber, which fits. Uh, This heel grabber, though, is a Hebrew idiom that means one who deceives, or kind of like we say, like to stab somebody in the back. Um, In the English, their name would be backstabber, um, which is a great name for a child. Um, I wouldn't recommend it, though. Um, So this is Jacob. This is how he is born. He comes into the world like this. And the first story we get about him is when he sells a bowl of soup to his brother for the birthright, for the right to a double portion of the inheritance. Because his brother is starving, Jacob sees an opportune moment to take advantage of the weak and the famished, and he sells a bowl of soup for a double portion of inheritance. And then after that, when it comes time for Isaac, their father, to give out the blessing, he, decides, he disguises himself as his older brother Esau and convinces his father to bless him, thinking that he is Esau. Jacob's life thus far is a story of chasing after blessing and crashing. The result of his deception is that he had to leave home because his brother was planning to kill him. And as he leaves, separated from his family, never to see his mother again, he finds a new home in the land of Padanaram and finds a woman whom he loved and agreed to serve Laban seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. And because of the love that he had for Rachel, these seemed but a few days to Jacob, is how it describes these seven years that he worked, toiled hard for Rachel, And on the night of his wedding, the deceiver became deceived. And Rachel was switched out for Leah. Jacob got a taste of his own medicine. And for the next 13 years after that, he served another seven years to marry Rachel and then served another six years for flocks and possession to build on his own. And each time as he serves, Laban continues to deceive him, to change his wages, to switch things up. And Jacob spends 20 years serving Laban, getting a taste of his own medicine, seeing what it's like to be on the receiving end of deception. Now, Jacob is a hardworking man. He has shown that by his character. He, his mantra is almost that he needs to work for everything that he gets. And so he works for his blessing and his birthright. He worked hard by making the soup, which he exchanged for the birthright, and he worked hard to deceive his father. He worked seven years for a wife and then works another seven years for the wife he actually wanted. And he works six years for the flock. Everything he has up to this point, he can say, 
I got that by my own hand. I worked hard. Now God has promised to be, his God has promised to be with him wherever he went. And we've seen Jacob slowly transform into a man that sees God for who he is. As the God who wants to bless him, who is the God where blessing comes from. But Jacob's faith, like ours, doesn't transform overnight. Uh, we can't just hear a sermon, <coughs> hear a sermon, and have our lives transformed. And from that moment forward, there's no sin, there's no issues. We just immediately get it, and it clicks, and we're good to go. That's not the way life works, unfortunately. Um, so the status of Jacob's faith at this point is Jacob is a man who can trust God for anything, as long as Jacob can figure out a solution to the problem. As long as Jacob can figure it out, he'll trust God. But when things get out of hand or seem out of control, Jacob has to step in. And we begin to see this again as Jacob journeys back home. He's preparing to meet his brother Esau. Last time he saw Esau, Esau was breathing murderous threats against him. So he's a little nervous. Did 20 years calm the rage, or is this a 20-year grudge that's going to be met with murderous thoughts and intents? So we're going to begin reading in Genesis 32, starting in verse 1, and read about Jacob as he prepares to go back and meet his brother. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord in order that I, might, that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. There are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, the flocks and the herds and camels, into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes into one camp and attacks it, then the other camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For only with my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys, these he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me, and put space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? You shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. 
They are present, sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I might appease him with a present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he stayed that night in the camp. Here is Jacob the deceiver, in his mind, preparing to encounter the results of his deception. It would have been one thing if the servants came back and said, Esau is ready and excited to meet you, but instead the report was, Esau is coming with 400 men. That doesn't necessarily say warm greeting, brother, happy to meet brother. These are 400 men prepared for war, ready to do battle. And so Jacob has a plan. His first attempt to appease Esau is sending these messengers ahead. He hopes by explaining that he has a large amount of possessions that maybe Esau will see, oh, I can gain something from being kind to Jacob. But instead, Esau decides to come and meet him. And so in an attempt to avoid the wrath that's going to come, Jacob divides his camp, kind of playing the odds and dividing camps out so that way at least half of what he has will be spared. Half of the children, half of the flocks won't be taken away by Esau. And then he says a prayer, which we'll get to in a little bit, but I want to jump down and look more at his second attempt to win the favor of Esau. This is the sending multitudes of animals ahead as gifts. In all, he sends over 540 animals to Esau. If you can imagine, especially those of you that own animals, what a you know, 200 goats might look like, or what just 540 camels and donkeys and cattle and goats all heading out as a gift. This was no inexpensive token of friendship. This was a costly gesture. And Jacob is very clever. He spaces them out, like giving somebody a gift every day of the week of their birthday or something, so that way you know the, he has time for Esau's heart to soften up. So the idea being that the first gift will come and Esau, outraged, ready to kill Jacob, will be like, okay, well, that's nice. I'm still going to kill him. And then the word comes, Jacob is right behind us. He's like, all right, he's right there. I'm going to get him. And as he prepares to meet Jacob, he encounters another gift. He's like, okay, well, I'm still mad at him, but my heart is softening a little bit. And Jacob is right there behind him. So I'm going to go and confront Jacob. And then he gets the third gift. And by this point, Esau's heart would be so overjoyed with the kindness that was shown to him that all of this past would be a distant memory and they would embrace his brothers. This is Jacob's goal his idea, each time he tells the people to lie, saying, Jacob's right behind us, just keep going, he'll be there, and each time there's another gift coming. Jacob is trying desperately to earn good favor. Our inclinations, much like Jacob, are to take control in times of crisis, which is where Jacob is. Jacob, for all he knows, this could be his last week alive. The brother who had planned to kill him is about to meet him, And while Jacob does pray, he says a prayer and then immediately moves into action. All these things in this chapter happen in one night. 
giving us this idea that Jacob is sleepless. If you've ever had one of those nights where there's something in your life that causes you such fear, such anxiety, that you can't even sleep. This is what Jacob does. First, he divides his flocks out. He sends messengers and gets word back. And then he begins setting up these droves, these gifts, arranging everything, putting people in charge. He can't sleep, and so he is getting everything into place. His faith has grown that he's turning to God in his prayer, and he recognizes his dependence on God to a certain degree, but he still has this flesh pattern of resorting to taking care of things on his own. He's like a child that asks their father for a cookie off the shelf that they can't reach. And as soon as they ask, they begin desperately climbing up drawers and trying to get the cookie on their own. He doesn't wait for God's answer. He doesn't wait for God to move. He immediately begins to take action, to try to, again, manipulate, to gain good favor. And especially in times of crisis, we can be like this. It's really hard to demonstrate patience, to wait on God when it feels like if something doesn't happen today, this is all going to fall apart. I need God to move now, and he doesn't seem to be answering. This happens when we don't trust that God is a God that wants to fight for us, that has promised to fight for us on our behalf. And so we feel safer when we're doing things. This is how I feel. I feel safer if I'm like doing something, even if it's not necessarily making a difference. As long as I'm you know, in motion, I'm not just sitting there waiting and thinking. And instead of moving forward confident in God, we begin assembling the troops. We begin arranging things that are going to protect us, building walls or preparing for whatever crisis lies ahead. And sometimes we don't even do this with material things, but we begin preparing ourselves mentally and emotionally. We begin, you know, worst case scenario thinking. And we're like, okay, well, the worst that can go is this, so I'm just going to prepare myself for that rather than trusting God. And if it goes better than that, then I'll be happy. But if it all falls apart, then at least I expected it. And rather than trusting God, we begin to build false expectations within ourselves in order to taper our expectation, our result, the result, and how we respond to it. This is how Jacob the deceiver responds. And we can often be like this. But Jacob shows himself not just to be a deceiver, but he's also desperate. And we see this in his prayer to God. This is one of the longest prayers that we have in the book of Genesis, of somebody just stopping and actually communicating directly to God and speaking with God. And in his prayer, Jacob does recognize that everything that he has has come from the hands of God, but yet there's a little bit of manipulation going on. Um, we don't see it until we begin to look at exactly how Jacob quotes God. In verse 9, um, if you can put that up there, Brian. Um, in verse 9, Jacob quotes God and says, Return to your country, to your kindred, that I may do you good. He says, God, this is what you told me. You told me to return that you would do me good. But if we actually look back at the command of God, God's promise to Jacob was that if you return to the land of the fathers and to your kindred, I will be with you. Jacob changes the words of God, almost going back to God and saying, God, you said go back and you would do good to me, and I'm going back, so now do good to me like you promised. And we, we like to fall into this as well. It's really easy for us to say, well, God, you promised, or God, you're God, you have to do good. You have to make this work out in my favor. And so 
Let's get it together. This has to work out the way that I want it to. God never promises to do us good in terms of what we often think of as worldly success or worldly profit or benefit. That's what Jacob is talking about here when he says that you promised to do me good. You promised that I would go into the land of Canaan and nothing bad would happen to me. This isn't what God promised. God promised that he would be with him, which is what God has promised to us as well. But so often we have this version of what we think God being with us will look like. This isn't the only time that Jacob does this in his prayer. If you can pull the next one up. Um, In uh, verse 12, go to the next one. He again says, Lord, you promised, you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sands of the sea, which cannot be numbered by multitude. Jacob is quoting the promise that God made to him back in 28, where all that God said is that your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. God's promise was that his offspring would be multiplied. God didn't promise anything specifically about doing him good. In fact, this word here, to do good towards somebody, yatob, doesn't occur anywhere in the entire Hebrew of Jacob's story, except for here where Jacob mentions it. This is the only time this comes up. God never hints at this. There's never any sort of you know, underlying promise that Jacob's referencing back to. This is something that Jacob has come to expect from God. And in fact, up to this point, God has kept his promise. Jacob has had 11 children so far. His offspring has been multiplied. And if Jacob was to enter into the land and Esau was to kill him, God would still have kept his promise. But that wasn't good enough for Jacob. And so Jacob, his manipulative tendencies kind of rise to the fore in his prayer, which we don't see when we're like, oh, good, good for Jacob. He's going and praying to God. But he's praying to God in a way that is demanding more from God than what God has promised to him. But Jacob has no need to really be afraid. If we look back, the beginning of this, when Jacob comes and sets up camp, he sets up camp here because the angels of God met him. He has an encounter with angels of God, some divine beings. He is known from the beginning that God instructed him to go on his way, to go back to the land. These are all things that God has told him to do, and God is with him. God is keeping his promise to angels showing up as a sign that God is keeping his promise that he will be with him. Additionally, there's these promises that God made to him when he was heading out. He promised him blessing. He promised him offspring. And he promised him presence. When Jacob left Canaan and went to serve with Laban, God promised him all of these things and these promises still stand. Additionally, Jacob has past experiences that he can rely on to show him that God is for him, that God is with him. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about when Rachel stole the idol, and in all reality, Laban should have been able to take Jacob back and made him serve him because of the the theft that took place. But God protects him from there. When the herds are multiplied, when Jacob begins this weird breeding practice of placing sticks in front of animals and his flocks, they grow immensely. Jacob knows and he said, he told Rachel and Leah that this was God's hand. God is the one that did this. Even when it comes to the 
to the children that he has, Jacob has told his wife Rachel that it is the Lord that opens and closes the womb. And it is the Lord that provided him with the 11 children that he has up to this point. Actually, 11 sons and one daughter. He has experienced God's blessing, God's provision all along the way. But now, in a new moment of crisis, all of that's a distant memory in the past, and he fails to trust in God for the present. And the same happens to us. We can have very short memories of God's provision, of God's um, protection, of his working in our lives. It's easy to forget the way that God comes through when the next crisis hits and we don't know. And like Jacob, we often expect things from God that he hasn't promised to us. And so we forget what God has done, and we require things from God that he's never promised to us. He's promised to be with us, to lead us through times of crisis. He's promised us that he will continue to transform us, to conform us into the image of his son, and that we actually do know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, to those who are called according to his purpose. But this good is not our definition of good. Way back at the beginning of Jacob, we talked about God's blessing and the world's definition of blessing. And in order to understand what God says when he says, I'm going to do good to you, he is going to do his best in his plan for us when we don't see it. And it doesn't always look like what we want in this life here and now, and very often it doesn't. God will lead us through difficult times through moments of crisis, through moments of unsurety, and sometimes pain and suffering, in order to deepen our walk with him. Because he knows that is what is for our good. If he was to give us everything we needed, it would be very easy for us to feel like we don't need him at all because we have all we think we need apart from him. This is Jacob the desperate. Looking to God trying by any means possible to save himself from the consequence of his deception 20 years earlier. We've seen Jacob the deceiver, Jacob the desperate, and now we get to experience Jacob the disabled as he wrestles with God. Would you read with me the rest of this chapter, starting in verse 22, as Jacob has an encounter with God? Verse Verse 22, It says, the same night. So again, we're still in the same night where Jacob is doing everything. Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. 
Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the, of, eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Jacob wrestles with God. But before this happens, he makes one more measure. He again separates himself from his wives and his children. So now the camp is thoroughly divided out. There's three droves of herds going off to meet Esau. He's divided into two camps. His wife and children are separated off, and he is by himself. He has taken every measure to make sure he is safe. And as he is there in the night, he grapples with God. He wrestles with God. The author very clearly uses the term man to show that it's just a man. We don't know who it is at first. And as these two wrestle through the night, it becomes clear that this is not just a normal man because he touches his hip and the hip pops out of socket. It is something that not any man would be able to do. And Jacob immediately recognizes that he is wrestling with the divine. This mysterious man has some sort of supernatural nature to him. And Jacob's posture changes immediately. He goes from a man that is wrestling, trying to prevail, to a man that is clinging. There's a big difference if you've ever had a child that is wrestling you and trying to take you down versus the child that is grabbing onto your leg and not wanting to go as you walk away. Jacob's posture is drastically different because he no longer has the ability to, rest, to wrestle. You cannot wrestle if your hip is out of socket. It does not work. He clings to God for blessing. His posture changes. He's no longer trying to prevail on his own strength, but he is clinging to the one that he knows can give him the blessing. He is holding tight, not wanting to let go because he knows that the blessing only comes from God. And when he says that, I will not go until you bless me, <coughs> something happens that we really only understand in the Hebrew. The name changes from Jacob to Israel. Jacob, the heel grabber, backstabber, man who gets blessing on his own, his name has been changed to Israel, which means God fights for you. This is a change of identity. Jacob, the man who has gotten everything on his own, who has fought in his own strength, God will now fight for him. Jacob will never have to fight again. If you think of this over the past couple of months as we looked at Jacob, and as I've studied, I've kind of just felt like the strain of the life of Jacob, of being a Jacob, of somebody that every step of the way is constantly thinking, constantly planning, constantly scheming, how do I get ahead? And here God says, enough. I'll fight for you. You don't have to fight for yourself anymore. You don't have to strive to get ahead. I am here. I will fight for you. And in fact, the touch on the hip shows that Jacob will never again be able to fight for himself. God does this in our lives. He uses our weaknesses and our inabilities to deepen our faith in him. For Jacob, he knew the rest of his life as he walks with this limp. It's a constant reminder that God is the one fighting for him. And oftentimes we get so angry at our inabilities, our weaknesses, 
the fact that we can't do everything that we want to do. And in those moments is God trying to get our attention, saying, I'm the one that will fight for you. You don't have to do it all on your own. So in those moments when you feel the weakest, recognize that God is using this as a moment to deepen your faith in him. And in those moments when you feel like you don't have the ability to do it, that you can't do it on your own strength, recognize that you can't and trust in God. It is in this position, this position of clinging to God rather than fighting, that Jacob finally gets his blessing. At the end of verse 29, it says, And there he blessed him. There God blesses Jacob. This is the first time in all the story of Jacob that Jacob has been blessed from God. We've heard a lot about God's blessing that's come to Lot, or to Laban on behalf of Jacob. People around Jacob have been blessed. But never has God specifically come and blessed Jacob. God's promised that he would bless him. But here we finally get it. It is only once Jacob's posture changes When we began talking about blessing, we said blessing is anything that comes from the hand of God. And Jacob has spent his entire life trying to get things by his own hand. And now he recognizes that blessing is from the hand of God alone, and God gives it to him. It is nothing that can be earned, nothing that can be fought for, that can be deceived for, that can be manipulated for. It only comes as a gift from God. And the only way to get it is when we cling to God. To me, this is probably my favorite part of the book of Genesis. Because there's such a drastic shift for chapter after chapter after chapter. We almost tire of hearing about the family conflict that results from all this infighting and deception and lying. And finally, Jacob gets it. He clings to God. And so that's my call today for all of us. To recognize that we can live in confidence, seeking only God for our blessing, not trying to get it on our own, not fighting, not striving, but recognizing that God fights for us. It reminds me of Psalms 46.10 where it says, Cease striving, stop striving, and know that I am God. Stop striving in life, trying to get everything by your own hand. But know, know who God is. Know that he is the one that gives us all good things, that every good and perfect gift comes from him. It comes down from the Father of lies with whom there is no changing. And it's because of Christ's death on the cross that we don't have to fight to prove our worth. It's not just because of how awesome we are that God loves us so much that he gives it to us. We were separated from him and he came and fought for us on our behalf and died on the cross so we would not have to fight on our own a losing battle against sin. Because of his death, because of his substitution in our place, we don't have to fight to prove our worth. We don't have to fight for blessing. We can cease striving. We can breathe. And trust that God is sovereign over our lives. That he is genuinely doing 
the best for us. And we don't have to worry about his inability because he is the all-sovereign. There's nothing outside of his power that he cannot do. So it's not like God has some great plan for your life and something got in the way of it. Anything God desires to do, he can do. And so this morning, we're going to take communion. And I want us, as we're taking communion, to reflect on this truth that as we take the cup and the bread, that we are remembering Christ's sacrifice. We're remembering that he came and fought for us and won, that he took care of the battle, and so we can rest and trust in him.